And so it's kind of neat that after many years of making me feel much older, we're in the same church. All right, we are back to Sunday school. Um, we've been obviously working through our confession, but we've also done a bit of a detour on church history, which it sounds like for at least some has been helpful. Uh, I think it is helpful. So we went through the English Reformation last week, or two weeks ago, and some follow-up discussion on that uh, that came from uh, last week's discussion. And so I don't want to cut that short. If there's more to discuss on that element, I happily keep going that route. I think it's helpful to understand church history. I've had a number of comments from people afterward, like, could we just do like just a history class? And I would love to, but um, I think we also do want to keep working uh, through this. So I don't want to cut that short. Anything, anything else um, to discuss here? I want to leave it, leave it open. I see two hands. Dave. The short answer is, since 1535, everything in church history has been totally normal. So, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we got it all figured out and we're smooth sailing from here. No, not quite. I don't actually remember bringing up the Plymouth Brethren, uh, although maybe indirectly talking about kind of the millennial fever that struck those Anabaptists at Munster. Um, so there would be some, some touchstones there. Okay, and so yeah, now we are talking... Post-Reformation, we're moving into the 1800s if we're talking Plymouth Brethren. Who's ever heard of the Plymouth Brethren? Is that a name that anyone's ever heard of? Okay. Who's ever heard of a man by the name of John Nelson Darby? Anyone heard the name John Darby? Okay. Anyone heard the name C.I. Schofield in the Schofield Reference Bible? Yeah, now lots of hands should go up. Okay. Okay, so what's this all about? Um, where to start? The 1800s were a wild time, um, both in England and on this continent. The 1800s, for a variety of reasons, were a season that was rife with schismatic people and actually um, a whole bunch of offshoots. Uh, and even you know groups that are somewhat adjacent to Christianity today almost all find their roots in the 1800s, right? Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, um, particular versions of Christian science and so forth. It, it was a wild time, and we can go into the reasons for why that may have been. Um, but to discuss the Plymouth Brethren uh, and Darby, so now we're, we're going to go to England to about 1830, okay? We're all there? We're all in England in 1830? Okay. Uh, well, actually Scotland, I guess. 
Um, there was a, 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 I believe he's actually a Presbyterian minister by the name of John Nelson Darby, um, who was living, as is often the case in church history, in unhappy and unsettled times. Um, and unhappy times tend to create unique things that kind of happen. He went to go visit a young girl in his congregation, a girl by the name of Margaret McDonald, two M's, Margaret, Margaret something, Mc something, two M's. What? McDougal? Okay, Margaret, okay, then if it's Margaret McDougal, then it's, it's that. Um, and Margaret, this young Margaret had had uh, dreams and visions uh, that took place mostly in the book of Revelation, uh, and that had to do with uh, the nation of Israel. And this, when she reported this to her minister, to Reverend Darby, uh, he became somewhat fascinated by it and did a deep dive into the book of Revelation and into apocalyptic uh, prophecy. And I'll back up even further, and I should say, all through church history, ever since the very early days, you might be shocked to find out, Christians have had different views on eschatology or different views on future things. Is that a shocker? <laughs> okay, I haven't rocked anyone's faith to say Christians have viewed the end differently from each other. Okay, so basically all through church history, there's been a view called premillennialism, and in the early church it was called chileism, just means a thousand, um, where Jesus returns to earth and then there's a thousand year period of peace on earth and then the final judgment. And there's also been a view, just as long, called post-millennialism, uh, in which the millennium comes through the gospel preaching of the church and then Christ returns at the end of the millennial. Okay, so that's where these names come from. Premillennialism means Jesus comes and then the millennium, post-millennialism, Post-millennialism means the millennium happens and then Christ returns at the end of that. That's the way we talk about it today. But the millennium wasn't actually really the issue for most of church history. Um, people talked about it, but it wasn't really the issue. The reason we talk about it today in terms of the millennium, um, and there's actually, how many references to the millennium is there in the Bible? Which book is it in? The easiest book in scripture, which is the book of Revelation, okay? Um, so typically angels have fear to tread, being too sure about the millennium. So that wasn't really the, the question in the early church. The question in the early church had to do more about the thrust of, of overall history. But in the days of Mr. Darby, what happened was he took the, uh, a premillennial view of church history, which has always been there, but he made some modifications to it. Uh, and the modifications he made to it had to do with what many people uh, assume today has always been there, which is a doctrine of the rapture, the, of the great tribulation, and then of uh, things happening in, in Israel. Um, and many people today uh, have grown up with this being such a popularized view that the only thinking that we do, I, at least for myself, to get through that paradigm, was the only differences of eschatology that I thought were possible were where you put the rapture relative to the Great Tribulation. Okay? Um, because this view has become very popularized. But if you'd go back before the 1800s, 
uh, and asked someone about the rapture, what they understood it to be was the final resurrection at the judgment, wherever they put the millennium. That's how they understood the rapture. Um, and all along, I should also say, um, it's not a unique thing for Christians to be concerned about the salvation of the Jewish people. Okay? Um, sometimes when you bring up this concept that, uh, that there's other views out there than Mr. Darby's view, uh, I've had the charge of anti-Semitism because I don't hold Dr. Darby's view. However, okay, does, does anyone have a study Bible with the old catechisms in it? Yeah? Does someone want to go? I won't dig it up here. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, about the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, that would be close to 200, maybe in the 190 somewhere. If someone wants to dig that up, about the second petition... One ninety-one. Does someone want to read that out loud if you've got it in the back of your Bible? Okay, we won't do a deep dive on that. But did you everyone notice that one of the things that the Puritans prayed for was the conversion of the Jews, right? They understood the salvation of the Jews to be a key piece of something that needed to happen before Christ returned. So that in itself was not unique to, to Darby. But Darby, well, I'm going to back up even further because this is potentially a giant topic. Who has read and mastered the book of Revelation? <laughs> Come on, guys. It's easy peasy. <laughs> okay. There are basically four basic ways that Christians have read the book of Revelation, all of them ancient, so no one should dunk on anyone else. Um, the, by far the most common view today is a view called futurism which is we read the book of Revelation as being future to us. Okay? So if you're living in the year 2023 and you want to know how the future is going to go, you read the book of Revelation. Okay? Another view uh, of the book of Revelation is called historicism, which says it's not all futuristic. These chapters are like a long unfolding of church history. Okay, so in the early chapters of the book, you have early church history, medieval church history, contemporary church history, and it keeps unrolling until the final three chapters, uh, which talks about the final judgment. Okay, so it's this long unrolling. Another view is called uh, preterism, which basically says the book of Revelation is really not about our future for the most part. It's about the future of John's original audiences, those first century churches. Okay, so it's, it's a book about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a book about the end of the old covenant age 
Uh, and so the coming tribulation, the coming cataclysm, happened when Jerusalem fell. And it zooms out by the end to the final uh, three chapters about the final judgment. And then there's another view called idealism, which says this isn't actually a book of prophecy. It's just kind of a, a imagery about this long-standing uh, conflict between good and evil. I'll stop there. So far, so good. We see there's different ways to read this apocalyptic book. Keith. Okay. One is heretical and the other is orthodox. Okay. So, uh, there is a view called full preterism or hyper preterism, which is heretical. No Christian can hold to it, which says that that final judgment has already happened. The resurrection's already happened. And that's something that the Bible itself says there's people preaching this and <laughs> get them out of the church because that's false. Okay? We're not in the final eschatological kingdom, clearly. All Christians should agree on that. Uh, Orthodox preterism just says, no, there's lots of prophecy about the end of the Old Covenant age in the Bible, but the final judgment is yet to come. That's a, a, certainly within the bounds of Orthodox Christian thought. Yes, yeah, if you hear preterism as a dirty word, there is a, a kind of hyper-preterism that finds a new system to interpret the Bible, and they say, okay, good, everything fits in this now, right? I've got a hammer, so everything becomes a nail. No. It's, it's orthodox as long as you're looking at that context, but all Christians need to agree that the return of Christ is future and bodily. All Christians have to hold to that, okay? And all Christians do hold to that. If you look at our 1689 confession, the bare basics are in there. Christ is going to return bodily to judge the living and the dead, and there's two final outcomes, heaven and hell. That's it. Okay? If you're a Christian, you have to believe that. Where you put the train schedules and everything is, uh, how you read Revelation even, is important but secondary, I would say. What John Darby did was he took the older premillennial view, and he said there is a future great tribulation. So he's reading... The book of Revelation, like a futurist. Okay, this is coming. Um, but what he did was he added a rapture doctrine to it so that the church will be taken out of the world before this great tribulation happens. Now, in his time, um, people understood the 1260 days of Revelation to be 1260 years. They're living in the 1830s. They did the math backwards, and when the Roman Catholic Church started, they put it somewhere in the mid-500s, which meant the world was ending in 1844. Okay? So, uh, 1844, we're, we're the fig tree generation. Napoleon, he's doing some bad stuff in Europe. He's the Antichrist. See? All these prophecies are being fulfilled in our lifetime. And some people, even though that clearly didn't happen in 1844, some people like the Seventh-day Adventists still hold to 1844 <laughs> as being... Christ came in a secret judgment. Seventh-day Adventists talk about it, this investigative judgment. So they say, no, the prophecy didn't fail. It did happen in 1844. It just it went differently than we thought. It was secret. It wasn't bodily or personal or physical. Um, but Darby held to a, a pre-tribulational rapture doctrine, uh, and then actually there, a whole system of theology with it. So dispensationalism is, is his project, uh, his brainchild, um, 
And it's not just about eschatology. It's become about that today because the, the most troubling aspects of dispensationalism very, very few people hold to anymore. Um, but it was a whole system where basically it goes like this. God's plan A was the nation of Israel. When Jesus came, Israel rejected their king. Okay, so far so true. So far so good. Okay. Um, when Israel rejected her king, God moved to delay the kingdom. And so what he did was he moved to the church age. Okay, so the prophetic clock stops when Jesus uh, is murdered by the Jews. God will move to the Gentiles temporarily, bring in the Gentiles. Once the last Gentile is brought into the church, the church age is over. The church gets raptured out of the world because this is kind of a, a parallel project to God's project with Israel. Okay, so the church gets raptured out of the world. All these cataclysmic events happen, the prophetic clock starts again, and then uh, Jerusalem is restored, a third temple is built, the sacrificial system gets restored, uh, and it all becomes about kind of the old covenant being fulfilled that way, okay? Now, premillennialism, the view that Jesus comes before the millennium, is not a new or novel view at all. Uh, the view about Israel and the view about the rapture was depending on your perspective, a development in theology or carving out a novel path, depending on your perspective. But it was something different that Darby uh, introduced. And his colleague, Mr. Schofield, popularized this system in the United States through the uh, Schofield Reference Bible, which if you're probably 50 or over, I'm sure you've heard of the Schofield Reference Bible. Okay, it was widely accepted by evangelicals. Uh, and the notes in the Schofield Reference Bible taught this system of theology, where there was kind of two parallel peoples of God, uh, but the church would get raptured out and things would uh, move back to kind of these old covenant fulfillments in present-day Israel. I'll stop there for now. Do we understand this to some degree? Have you seen how popular this view has been in our day? It's, it's been very, very popular in our day. Um, doesn't make it right, doesn't make it wrong. But it has been popularized by evangelicals today, very much so. Questions on that so far? It's a big topic. I want to stick with the main things. But if we want to understand history, if we want to understand evangelicalism today, this is actually an important piece of how evangelicals tend to think today. I would hate to part company with anyone over how to understand the book of Revelation because it's a tough book, <laughs> okay? Um, and if I go through the preachers that I listen to every week, I probably, I probably listen to 30 or 40 sermons a week. All the views are represented in my favorite preachers. I have a view that I think 
makes the most sense. But I don't think this is something that's worth uh, saying you're a heretic if you don't share my view. Um, so yeah, some people understand those to be actual first century churches. Some people understand them to be representative of different ages of the church. Um, and I want to be careful about not sharing my own view too much too early. But that would be the two, uh, the two views. The problem with Mr. Darby is that he has this new system. And everyone who didn't embrace his system was a heretic. And unfortunately, that mindset became very prevalent. The Plymouth Brethren were a very, very closed-off group. Okay, they were kind of the, the forerunners of what has become fundamentalism today. So your test, uh, if you grew up EMC like me, the way you could tell you were a Christian was that you didn't smoke, for example. Okay? To the Plymouth Brethren, the way you can tell someone is a Christian is that they believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And if you don't, your theology is pretty suspect. Uh, and this became a, a view, in, not super popular. This is happening in the time of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had some very sharp things to say about Mr. Darby, about his system. He's become a new pope of the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, they're very uncharitable. They're very unkind. They don't have a healthy Catholic spirit at all. They're just, we're the Plymouth Brethren. Finally, we got this right, right? And so that's a little bit that restoration attitude. <laughs> Everyone is wrong in history until this new system got worked out. Okay, um, and it was a troubling system. So to, to, uh, to Darby himself, because the kingdom is 100% future, that means the Sermon on the Mount isn't for the church, right? Because Jesus says this is what it's going to be like in the kingdom, and the kingdom's not here yet. The Sermon on the Mount isn't for Christians. It's for the end of time, okay? So the concern of the Christian church became primarily just about winning souls, Okay, there's not time to do doctrine. There's not time, uh, because we're in a different dispensation than Israel was, there's no time even for law. Okay, we just got to save souls. This world is a sinking ship. Why polish brass on a sinking ship? Get as many souls into the life draft as you can. There's not time for theology. Um, and so they became quite suspicious of certain elements of... Uh, of theology generally, and that's where Spurgeon kept going after uh, Darby. Uh, another Plymouth Brethren, who's ever heard of George Mueller, evangelist and, and orphanage instructor? Okay, George uh, Mueller grew up in the Plymouth Brethren, and later on in his life he said, I had to decide between my Bible and Mr. Darby. I, I, I realized I can't, there is no pre-tribulational rapture in the Bible that George Mueller could find. I have to choose between Mr. Darby and Mr. Mueller. And because Mr. Darby was my way or the highway, Mr. Mueller got kicked out. Okay? It started what was called the Open Brethren because he got kicked out because he's a heretic because he didn't hold to a pre-tribulational rapture anymore. Now, how does this affect us today? Because nobody today, well, I shouldn't say nobody, I have met very few people, even from some of my dispensational friends, that would say there's no sense in which the kingdom is here today. In our group of Reformed Baptist pastors, there is a guy in, uh, in Kenora who holds to certain elements of dispensationalism. And I'd ask him, is the kingdom here in some sense? And he'd say, yes, absolutely. So it's not that radical <laughs> futurism of Mr. Darby. 
But how is this practical today? Well, here's the deal. This view was a fringe view until about the world wars. Okay? Uh, and this is where I'll say something positive about the dispensational people. Liberalism was making major inroads into this continent in the 1920s. Okay? Uh, and a man came to Princeton Seminary, which was the last of the Puritan seminaries that had remained thoroughly conservative and biblical. And he reorganized the seminary in such a way that it clearly was starting to move in a liberal direction. Okay? Uh, and that's where some of these guys, like Cornelius Van Til and John Murray and J. Gresham Machen, left to start Princeton Seminary because, or to start Westminster because Princeton had turned liberal. The man who destroyed Princeton Seminary was a liberal Presbyterian who later came to be president of the United States whose liberal idea said, we're going to go across the world and we're going to fight the last war that this world will ever see because of this inevitability of human progress. Okay, we're moving into this liberal utopia. We're going to fight the last war in all of human history because progress will come. And then we're going to start this League of Nations in the United Nations and it's just going to be peace on earth and goodwill towards men forever. Very liberal man by the name of Woodrow Wilson. Okay? So what happened here is that the old seminaries, the old churches, kept their optimistic post-millennial theology, but it became divorced from the gospel. So this wasn't about God's gracious purposes in the Great Commission going out and converting people. It was just about human progress through science, through cooperation, uh, through the inevitability of progress of the human soul. That's how we're going to convert this. So post-millennialism became a very liberal byword to conservative Christians. It was a corruption of the older Puritan vision, but it became associated with liberalism. And the dispensational people did hold the fort down for conservative Bible scholarship. I, I, I'm not a fan of the way they did it. They basically said, and this will get to your grandparents' generation, they basically said, see, look, theological education makes you a liberal. Seminary makes you a liberal. Studying philosophy makes you a liberal. We don't want that. To the pit with the seminaries, we're going to start a Bible school movement. And the Bible schools initially were an alternate, uh, alternative to the seminaries. Um, and they did not teach systematic theology and they did not teach philosophy because those things would corrupt you. Okay? Even, even biblical languages was... Well, it was the King James Bible, dispensationalism, um, you know, clean-shaven men... Um, girls in dresses and, and so forth. And that became the fundamentalism that your grandparents grew up in. Okay? Um, they saw a real problem. Yes, the old churches, the old mainline churches and the old seminaries had become liberal. No question. Okay? So I'm, thankful, I'm not a fundamentalist, but I'm thankful for the fundamentalists that someone kept the candle burning while this was all happening in these liberal seminaries. Okay? So... If you're a conservative Christian, I think, even if you're not a dispensational, we owe a debt of gratitude to those dispensational people. But the system itself is unique. Okay? Um, and like I say, hardly anybody today still holds to this only future kingdom view. Basically what it's come down to now is different understandings of the end of all things. Okay, and so kind of one transitional figure from the old dispensationalism to the even older reformational understanding 
uh, or the early church understanding would be someone like John MacArthur today. He's kept certain elements, so John MacArthur believes that there's going to be a rapture. Uh, he believes certain prophecies about national Israel are yet to be fulfilled. So he holds on to that system, um, but through some controversies that he's gone through in his own life, he, he, he put away the worst parts of the system quite clearly. Uh, and I, I won't go into, unless you want to, I won't go into lots of details. But he would be kind of a transitional figure now between that fundamentalist dispensational world and the early church or reformed kind of Catholic faith, however you'd want to understand it. He'd be someone that's kind of standing in that unique spot, trying to hold two worlds together. Uh, whether that's a long-term project or not, I don't know. Um, but that, it w that would be why John Nelson Darby, dispensationalism, even if you don't hold those views, is important to understand because it has absolutely pervaded our thinking. The Left Behind movies would have made no sense to anyone alive during this. Because you say rapture, oh, well, yeah, you mean like at the resurrection when Jesus returns to earth and we go up and meet him in the air, right? Like, like the citizens of a city go out of the city gates to meet their king after he's conquered the enemy and he's coming back. We go out to meet him, give him a victory parade, but we're all moving back into the city gates. That's how they understood the rapture. It wasn't the church coming out of the world for a thousand years uh, while the prophetic clock moves back to, to Israel. The older view is Israel is the church and the church is Israel. Sometimes people talk about replacement theology. I think that's also a mischaracterization. It's fulfillment theology. Israel's this little acorn seed, right? And God grafts in Gentiles, even in the Old Covenant, right? Rahab doesn't belong there. She's in. Ruth doesn't belong there. She's in, right? So God's always been grafting people into Israel. And then we find out in the New Testament that who's the children of Abraham? Who are... You're grafted in by faith, right? So if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a seed of, of Abraham. And so they would see one people of God, whereas dispensationalism would tend to see Israel and the churches, to Mr. Darby, completely separate. They'll never touch. In modern dispensationalism, there's a distinction, but they're not, it's not quite the same body, but they're not so divorced from each other. Yeah. That's 200 years of, church history in 20 minutes. I hope that I didn't confuse everybody. Okay, go to follow-up, Dave. Can you see at least the broad strokes of these different views kind of working their way through history? Okay. And why I think there's actually wisdom here, just saying, here's the basics. Jesus Christ will bodily return at the end of history to judge the living and the dead. And there's two places. There's the new creation, heaven, and there's the lake of fire, hell. You have to agree on that. How your train schedules work between now and there, interesting discussion. It shapes the way you read Old Testament and New Testament prophecy, but ultimately we're not gonna part company over this. Interestingly, and this is often the case, the people that are most willing to part company over it are the people with the new system, right? I, I don't know too many post-mill or all-mill or historic pre-mill people that'll put it in a confession of faith. But there was a period where the pre-tribulation rapture got put into confessions of faith to make sure none of us liberals would ever get into those right, liberals like myself. So, why are you laughing, Tina? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Huge topic. 
Are we okay with this so far? Have I gone way too fast and okay, my, there's bees buzzing in my head? Okay. Does someone need a Tylenol? Okay. Okay. It's okay. Christ is coming back, and how you understand it will happen will have absolutely no bearing on how it does happen. Okay. We want to believe what the Bible says. Uh, one of my favorite theologians who was strongly opposed to dispensationalism, uh, Ruzes Rushduni, someone asked him once, well, what if you're wrong? What if there is a rapture? And he said, well, I'm not opposed to changing my theology midair. <laughs> Fair. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> yeah. That's the easiest one because you don't have to do any work to arrive there. Yeah. It'll all pan out in the end. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Questions on this? Dave and then Jeremy. while we're butchering babies at home. Oh, absolutely. It has absolutely shaped foreign policy. Okay, and I, I'll say that because I do believe in the future conversion of the Jews, I do believe Israel has a right to defend herself. I, I tend to be pro-Israel, not because I think there's some kind of eschatological stuff happening in Israel right now. I don't. But I support them because they believe in democracy and just weights and measures, and, and, but they're not perfect. They do bad things too. But it's absolutely shaped our thinking that Israel can almost do no wrong, right? And, and every time something happens, we'll send them a check. Okay? And I say that as someone who supports Israel, but I don't think they can't do any wrong. Okay? I think they have had some tremendous victories, and I would even see... God's providential hand, how do you take down Syria, Egypt, and I forget the third one, in three days? That seems providential, right? This little sliver of people taking out these big enemies, but it has shaped foreign policy. I think the biggest problem, practically, in terms of fruit, with the dispensational rapture view, is that it tends to neutralize what we do now. If the world is just going to go to hell in a handbasket, if there's no point in sinking brass or polishing brass on a sinking ship, 
the answer naturally gets to be retreat. Get out of the seminaries, get out of the arts, get out of media. We can't do stuff anyway, and not, not nearly all dispensationalists do this, but that mindset seems logical. It's a sinking ship. It's a lost cause. Get out of here, <laughs> right? So you retreat, whereas the older view that the gospel slowly covers the earth would say, no, no, yeah, it's bad. Let's go build a new seminary. Princeton fell. Too bad. Okay, time to build Westminster, <laughs> right? That, because we're going to win, right? It's, it's a different mindset. Um, and lest I malign someone, let's say like John MacArthur, for a guy who has said, we lose down here, and he said that very clearly, we lose down here. Boy, he's done a lot of winning. He's built a, a church, he's built a ministry, he's built a seminary, he's well known, they won a court case, several in a row, in the state of California during COVID. Boy, for a guy who's committed to losing, he sure wins an awful, awful lot. Okay? One guy jokingly said, my favorite post-millennial theologian is John MacArthur, because he just keeps on winning. Okay? Well, um, and I want to talk fairly about it. So I'm not saying that's necessarily what happens in a dispensational mindset, but the overall posture of the church has been to get out of things, because we lose down here. But that is quite a difference in thinking from historic Christianity pre-Darby. Pre uh, and even the Anabaptists, their error was actually almost in the other direction. They were going to bring the kingdom down by force in Munster. Darby says, the way we advance the kingdom, right? So we, it said in the confession question there, we should pray for the hastening of Christ's return. In dispensationalism, what would hasten Christ's return? Things getting worse faster, right? And so it's almost like an adrenaline rush in that mindset. Oh, it's getting bad. There's a nuclear war starting, I guess. Right? Um, well, no. How would we hasten the return of Christ? Well, if you have this other view, it would be through the Great Commission. Evangelize the nations. That's what will hasten the return of Christ because Christ is coming back to a, a world where the Great Commission has done its work rather than where we've, we've shrunk back. And you don't have to be a distance. Oh, we'll get it. Actually, it's a little bit touching on the text we're teaching today. You don't have to be post-millennial by any stretch to believe in long-term victory. I'll actually, uh, Charles Spurgeon was technically a pre-mill. He did not believe in a rapture. He didn't believe in dispensationalism. He was quite opposed to it. Uh, but as a pre-millennial guy, he said God would be a liar if the world was not converted before Christ returns. That's how he understood it, as a pre-millennial man. Okay, so this, that view of victory isn't confined to one view of the millennium or one eschatology. That was basically the posture of Christianity till the 1830s. Um, and that view became popular after the World Wars. It was existent in the 1830s. Um, it was wildly popularized after the World Wars. So much so that if you grew up in my time frame, you just knew that this was the only view on offer. You didn't even hear about the other views. Right? And I've, he I've heard people that went to seminary in the 1950s um, and they just said, well, yeah, here's this view in church history. No one holds it anymore, but, you know, be aware of amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic pre... Like, no one holds it, but for church history purposes, you should be aware of it. Uh, I think that's changing, but whatever. Okay, I didn't mean to give everyone an excedrin headache, but that's what happens when you 
crammed several hundred years into a few minutes. Anything else before we close this off? Okay, I love John MacArthur, and there is not a week that I do sermon prep that I don't open his commentaries. I love the man. He's done many wonderful things. For some reason, he recently at a Puritan conference that his church held, someone asked him during open mic time, he said, okay, so you love the Reformers, you love the Puritans, why is it that your eschatology is so different from theirs? And his answer was interesting. He said, well, it wasn't really a concern of the Puritans, which isn't quite true. It was a front and center concern, which is why they colonized and <laughs> built seminaries. It was very much a top-of-mind thing for them, was the victory of the kingdom. Um, but his answer was interesting. He said they, hadn't, they weren't focusing on this in their time. We've had lots of doctrinal progress in the three, four hundred years since the Puritans. So now the church has progressed to the point where we know that the Bible teaches that the church will not progress. He didn't say it exactly like that, but that was the summary. He said, we've had these doctrinal developments, so now we know dispensational eschatology is true, but he made that case from the fact that we've progressed from there, but the church doesn't really progress in that view. So I found that interesting. Depending on how you understood his comments there, I think it was an unfair comment where he uh, talks about, oh, I'm post-millennial, I'm just going to waltz into the kingdom, and then he kind of conflated it with the prosperity gospel. No Puritan, no reformer, no ancient church father would have ever <laughs> said this means it's easy or conflated it with the prosperity gospel. I don't know if he meant two different things or if he conflated it all at once. I think that was an unfortunate thing. Um, sometimes when you get very, very close, the finishing touches of your theology, people start to get the most brittle right at the end, and I don't think that's healthy either, either way, but I don't think that was a constructive way to discuss it personally, yeah, because it's not, it's not the prosperity gospel that has been held. It was the kingdom victory through setback. Through, through, it's through many trials you must enter the kingdom. We better close it up. The kids are back here. So, again... That's it for this section. Next week we probably should <laughs> force the issue and get back in here, but this is good to discuss. I'm happy to discuss anything. History is valuable. It's not the Bible, but it is valuable to help us understand different streams of thought that have happened um, through here. And eschatology is not a thing that people need to draw, I think, lines about. The bare basics, Christ will return bodily to judge the living and the dead. And there are a total of two outcomes for people, heaven or hell. So the most important thing is that you're living for God's glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this discussion. Thank you again for the way you work through history, um, the way you keep building your church. Lord, and it's always with uh, people that we can simultaneously love and uh, see weak spots in. Lord, and we are no different. We surely have weak spots as well. And I pray that we would stay humble as we study history, as we look at historical ideas and historical figures, understanding uh, that the future will judge us too for the things that we're not seeing today. So I pray that you would keep us humble, uh, keep us charitable with one another, uh, 
and we trust that the purposes for your church will continue to go on. Thank you for your kindness, and I uh, pray that you'd be with us the rest of our morning as we prepare to worship you. Amen.